Well, this time all the kids who are heading back to Children's Church, I'll invite to head back ages three to kindergarten. Feel free to head back in Children's Church and join your teacher, Miss Chris, at the back. I see she's back there waving her hand. Ages three to kindergarten, feel free to head back. The rest of us may turn to the book of Genesis. You'll have no easier time finding a book in your Bible. Just turn right to the front. Genesis 1 is where we'll be this morning, and we are going to cover two verses. And some may ask, can you get a whole sermon out of two verses? And you know the answer. That's right. I mean, Genesis 1, we're just going to read verses 1 and 2 this morning, kind of to set the stage for all that will come. And kind of here through spring, we'll be in the book of Genesis, going through Genesis 1 through 11, the, the beginning, the foundations. I'm going to be reading from the NIV this morning. Uh, we've spent a few years using the ESV. We're switching up to NIV, not really for any substantive reason other than just to show that there are multiple translations in, uh, in English that are wonderful translations. We are blessed as English speakers to have NIV, ESV, NLT, CSB, NET, NASB, CSB. We have all sorts of wonderful, good translations. And somebody has asked, what is the best translation of the Bible? And the answer is, it's the one you'll read. That is the best English translation. We'll be in the NIV this morning. And I'm just going to read two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Would you pray with me? Well, our Father and God, as we begin uh, in this new year, going over a new book and going over the first book, I pray that you would bless us as we better know our Creator as we go through this account of the beginnings of this world, that we would have a greater understanding of your bigness and your goodness. Help us to see what you are saying amidst maybe all the potential debates and conversations around this book. Help us to see clearly what you want us to hear so that we may praise your name in the Spirit and the Son. And we do praise you this morning. Amen. So how did all of this get here? Everything we look at, everything we see, how did it get here? It's one of uh, the great questions of humanity, is how um, did what is become Is. Throughout most of world history, I think it's fair to say, most peoples have thought that there's some kind of creator or deity or even group of deities who came together and formed everything and made everything. That's probably the, the common view. But in recent years, in recent decades, in our modern times, there have been new theories, or specifically the religions of scientism or materialism, that have held that there's no God who created everything, no supernatural deities, that everything that is around us is a result of natural processes. That, that nature itself kind of produced itself, or always was. There's no God who created everything, but the material world is all that has been or ever will be. Christians and other theists, however, have argued that this atheistic scientism cannot account for the world. 
It has no power to explain how our world came to be. A Christian scientist and professor, Dr. Edgar Andrews, in his book, Who Made God?, argues that there are four things specifically that you cannot explain without a creator. There are four things in our world that without a creator behind it, you cannot explain how they came to be. So if you are here this morning and you are an atheist, or if you're listening and you're an atheist, or if you're somebody who's doubting the existence of God, I would want you to consider the following. As you doubt the existence of God, or maybe don't believe in the existence of a higher power, a creator, know that you have to wrestle with this. How did these four things come into existence? First, without a creator, you cannot really explain the origin of the universe. Without a creator, you can't explain how the universe came to be in the first place. This is the big question. How did physical stuff come into existence? And some might say, well, it was always there. The material things were just always around. Creation was always around. And if so, then it must be God. If there's nothing that came before it, then your God must be materials. And your God is dirt. And I would ask you if that's a satisfying God. And some have even said recently, well, maybe there's, there's like a multiverse which just moves the question elsewhere. Where did the multiverse come from? If this universe spawned from another universe, where did that universe spawn from? Somewhere you have to get to the beginning. Where did it all come from? And without a creator, you have no explanation for the origin of the universe. Why is it here? Where did it come from? Second, says Edgar Andrews, without God, you have no explanation for the origin of universal laws. Or to put it another way, without God, there's no way to explain why there's order at all. Without a creator, without a God, why is it that there are universal laws and order in this universe? Why is it not just a lump of chaos? If you were to go to the library... You'd walk into the library and you would find books arranged on a shelf. And those books you would find were arranged there intentionally by a coding system. And you would know where to find them by where they're placed. Now, as you're in that library, you would not assume that the books put themselves there. You would not assume that all those books that are arranged on a shelf just happened to fall in line like that. What would you assume? you would know that some skilled librarian like Jeff here put those books in place. Somebody intentionally put them where they are. That's why they're lined up that way. That's why they're in the order they're in. Now, our universe is far more complicated than the Dewey Decimal System. There is order and structure rather than chaos. And the only reason that could possibly be is because someone arranged it. There's no other explanation. Third, without God, without a creator, we cannot explain the origin of life. So let's assume that there's stuff, there's material, there's dirt, there's physical stuff. How did that physical stuff come alive? As you all are sitting in your chairs, you do not assume that your chairs are going to walk away from you. Why? You don't assume that non-living stuff all of a sudden is going to start living. 
you know that doesn't happen. How does non-living stuff become living, start reproducing? We know that living things can't come from inanimate things. So the question is, how did those living things come to be alive in the first place? Not only how did the matter itself get here, how did the matter become sentient? And fourthly and lastly, Edgar Andrews argues that without a creating God, you cannot explain the origin of the mind and soul. Not only are we living, but we have intellects, wills, emotions, feelings, motives, hearts, and minds. How? Why? Where did that come from? How did the dirt develop an ability to think and reason and feel? This ability to have a conscience and to think and love had to come from a loving and thinking being. Only a creative God explains that reality. Only a creative God answers the question of how and why does this exist at all. And as Christians, we go one step further. Because we say not only is there a God who created all things, but we say we know which one did it. And that's the point of Genesis in these first couple of verses is to introduce us to the God who created everything. We know that the God of Israel is the creator of the cosmos. That's the main point in these first two verses. The God of Israel is the creator of the cosmos. He is the one who created everything. Cosmos is a fancy word for the universe, the whole world. Because even more important than how was this created is the question of who created it. And that's what Genesis is all about. Uh, Genesis is a Latin-Greek translation of the Hebrew word for beginning. That's what Genesis means. The beginning. And Genesis is all about the God who began all things. Genesis was written uh, by Moses. It came from his hand, from God, through Moses. He wrote most of the books of the Pentateuch. There's one chapter there that describes his death. He didn't write that. Right, but other than that, Moses is responsible for just about all of the five books, the first five books of the Bible, and then some other editors came in and codified it and added a section about his death. And Genesis was written in the time of the wilderness wanderings in the desert, before they went into the Promised Land, and after Israel had been saved out of Egypt, God gave the Israelites the first five books, the law, to show them who God is. This God that had saved them out of Egypt, before they go into the promised land, this God gives them an account of who he is and what he's done for them. It's why Genesis exists, to show us who God is, that we may know him. In these first two verses, we find that the God of Israel is the creator of the cosmos. Briefly, I want to look through these two verses and just focus on three things, the creator, the creation, and the spirit. Creator, creation, spirit. First, let's look at the cosmic creator in verse 1. Here we're told about him in verse 1. The cosmic creator, the one who created everything. Verse 1 says, we all know it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's how our Bible starts with the words, in the beginning. Makes sense. It's an indication that in the beginning, 
when the beginning began, God was. When all time and space and creation began, there was one who was already in existence. There was one God, the God of Israel. Here he's called Elohim in the Hebrew. It's a plural form of the word for God, El, which means strong or powerful. It's in a multiple plural form. Some Christians think that may be an indication already that there is multiple persons in the one God Really, Elohim was just a way of saying majesty, kingliness. It's plural for, to indicate how great he is. And don't miss this right at the start. Where does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God. It does not say, in the beginning, you in the beginning, God. He is who this book is about. This story is about him and what he has done and all that he is doing. What makes him God? And what makes him God is that he is the one who was before all things. There is nothing before him, no one before him. Somebody might ask, well, how do we know there's no God before God? And I say, maybe theoretically we don't know or could not know that there's no one or nothing before God. But if we did hear of anything before God, that would be God. We just call that God. We hear and we know of nothing or no one before God. He is the one who is before all things. I apologize for the clicks. I don't know where they're coming from. We'll get through it. They'll try not to move so much. Just like we don't know where those clicks are coming from, we don't know where God came from because he was always there, always in existence. There is no one who created him. He just was. Some Christians throughout history have referred to God as the uncaused cause. You and I have a cause. We call them our parents. They're the ones who brought us into this life. We are here because they were here before us, and through them we came to be. We have something that brought us into this world. But God has no cause. There is no cause that caused him. He just was. And he is the one who causes all other things. There were no beings before God to cause his existence. And he is the ultimate cause of all other things. And God makes all things and has made all things. That's where, that's why this word is here. God is creator, which in the Hebrew is bara. It is a word used just about exclusively for God. There are all sorts of Hebrew words for making, doing, creating. This word that's here in Genesis 1 is a word that's only used for God's creating. It's a kind of creating that only he does. Only he created all things. He is the creator of heavens and earth. When it says heavens and the earth, that's what's called a merism. It's a figure of speech which talks about two different opposites on either end of the spectrum to include everything in between. So if you say... He was covered head to toe in dirt. Head to toe means his whole body was covered in dirt. 
from the toe to the head and everything in between. If you say from A to Z, it means everything, from A to Z and everything in between. And that is what is meant when this says, he created the heavens and the earth. It is a way of saying, he created everything, all things. There's nothing that was created that was not created by him. No matter how high you look, no matter how deep you go, everything that we see was created ultimately by God. So from what I understand, the furthest we can see in this space right now is 46.5 billion light years. I don't know how to comprehend that. I know it's big. I don't know how big. It's 46.5 billion light years. Whatever that means to you, that's how far we can see into space. And as far as we can see, and with all the new discoveries we make about space and all the planets and orbs and galaxies and systems and suns and stars that are out there, all of it is created by God. The heavens and the earth. And if we were to go the other direction into the smallest particle we would find there that that also is created by God. So the smallest particle we know of is called the quark, found in protons and neutrons, discovered in 1964, which I find fascinating. For 60 years, we've known about this particle. All of human history before then, we did not. So we keep going further in. I imagine maybe at some point we'll find what quarks are made of. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I don't know how that works. I'm just guessing. And when we do that, we will find that God made that too. And every new discovery is a new revelation of how great God is. And part of the reason all that stuff is in existence is a sermon to you, a proclamation to you as, you, as your jaw drops at the grandness of the universe, it is there for you to say, that is how grand our God is is that he is able to make all these things. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. We play this little game with my kids often. We say, who created you? Who made you? God did. Who made the sun? God did. Who made the trees? God did. Then we'll, we'll throw out different things. Who made candy? Well, God made people who used the earth that God made and formed candy. Who made Mario? Well, God made the nation of Japan. <laughs> he made a man named Shigeru Miyamoto who created Mario. Who made mosquitoes? The devil. Same with soccer. (laughs) It's that aspect of creation that makes God God, that separates him from all other beings. Remember where Genesis was written, when Genesis was written. It was written at the time that Israel was delivered from Egypt into the promised land. They were battling with other nations who had other gods. And Genesis is written to say, this is the one God. The other nations have gods of cattle, gods of the sky, gods of the sun, gods of every part of creation. Say, oh, they're responsible for this part of creation. And is, uh, the God of Israel is different because he's the one God who created 
all those things. This is something that no other God can do. No other God can create. No other God can make out of nothing. Satan can corrupt. He can take what God has already made and twist it and distort it, but he cannot create. This is something that only God can do. No other false gods, no other pretend deities can do. Only God can create. We call it creation from nothing. Creation ex nihilo. It's a Latin phrase which means from nothing. And it's not that God took nothing and created out of it. It's that God made in the midst of nothing. There was nothing around, no thing, no one. There was nothing there with him. It was just him. And then in the midst of that nothing, he created. There's a scientific principle known as the law of conservation of mass. And it's not about the impossibility of losing weight in the new year. It is about... The, the law of conservation of mass or the law of conservation of energy that in a system you cannot create or destroy mass or energy. You can only convert it. The, the, in the end, the equation has to balance that what exists, mass or energy in a system, has to continue to exist and the, the equation will balance out. So if you are burning wood on a campfire... The wood is not destroyed. It doesn't disappear. It converts to smoke, to ash, to heat. But the total amount of stuff is the same. Because in this universe, you cannot create or destroy. Ultimately, things can only change. I'm sure I'm messing that up. If there are scientists in the room, you can correct me. But the idea is that God can actually create. True creation. In the midst of nothing, from nothing, God can make new things. That's what he did here. It's what makes him God. He is the creator. Okay, what does that mean for us? How does that apply to us? What are the implications for us? If the God of Israel is the creator, it means a few things. It means, one, that he is Lord. If he is the one who created all things, then he is the one who is Lord over all things. He is king, and all things exist under his lordship. So when scripture calls God the creator, it's a way of saying that God is Lord. And all things belong under his control. If he is creator, he is sovereign, and he has control over all things. That nothing exists or happens outside of his control, because he is over and above all creation. So we never need to worry that things are going to spiral out of control or that God is helpless or that there's going to be a new day that presents challenges that God can't handle. Because God is creator, it means there are no accidental days. Because he is creator and he is Lord over all things. It means that he has authority over all things. It means that his word goes. And what he says is law. Because he is the creator. He has ownership over all things. He knows what is good for his creation. And all things exist by the word of his power. Because God is creator, all things work to serve him and bring him praise and honor. When we look at this world, it is, again, a testimony of God's goodness. In the same way, when you hear a wonderful piece of music, we say, what a wonderful musician. When we see good creation, we say, what a wonderful God. All creation is a display of his great awesomeness. And it means that creation has a purpose. And there's intent behind it. And that's what we get into in verse 2. 
We looked at the cosmic creator now. Think about, and look at in verse 2, the unformed creation. Verse 1 is about the cosmic creator. Verse 2 is about the unformed creation. Verse 2 tells us, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. In the beginning, God created all things in the midst of nothing. And then God put it into order. That's what verse 2 is about. He created it. Then he formed it. The Hebrew uses two words to describe the earth in its original state. Tohu, vabohu, which means formless and empty. The idea is a total wasteland in the beginning. These two words are repeated two other places in the Old Testament, one in Isaiah 34.11 and one in Jeremiah 4.23. Jeremiah 4.23 quotes Genesis 1.2 directly. And in the midst of a passage about judgment, it says, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty and the heavens and their light was gone. It's a passage about the judgment God will bring. And it quotes Genesis 1-2 and says, The earth, the land, was formless and empty, and the light was gone. It is a way of saying, maybe to use our modern language, I'm going to blast this place back to the Stone Ages. God's judgment will be so thorough the land will be like it was before it was ever formed in the first place. A total, barren, wasteland, desolate, without order. There is no light there. That's why there's darkness over the deep, because there is no light. It has not been created. So, for some amount of time, and we don't know how long that was, and I'm going to continue in this saying, we don't know how long this took. We'll get into more of that next week. I will maintain that the purpose of Genesis is not to give us a calendar, but to show us who and why God created, or God created all things and why he did it, and who's the one who did the creating. We don't know how long earth existed in this formless condition. It may have been moments, it may have been longer. But think about this. This is important. There was a moment where there was just matter, mass, the earth was formless, and then it wasn't. There's this mass of creation awaiting purpose. So if I were to teach this in a Sunday school class, and and if Larry wouldn't hate me for this, what I would do to teach this is I'd, I'd give you all a lump of clay, And I'd say, okay, what are you going to do with this lump of clay? And you'd think about, what do I want to do with this lump of clay in my hands? How do I want to form it? What do I want to make out of it? And those of you who are as creative as I am, you would make snakes. I can do that. Those who have creative capacity more akin to, to my wife and kids, you would make people or scenes of dancing or you would do something far more creative out of it. But all of you would think about, okay, what am I going to do with this lump of clay? And in your thought process, there would be purpose, there would be intent, there would be design, there would be a reason for why you're doing what you're doing. 
And that is the point here in verse 2. First, a lump of creation without order, without formation. And then, in a grand moment of purpose, God does something with it. If there is a drama or tension to these first couple verses, it's that you have this unformed creation, and you're waiting, what is God going to do with this? What will be the purpose behind it? And the moment he puts his hands upon it, so to speak, and starts molding it and making it, it shows that there's reason for what God is doing. There's purpose behind creation. That This is not accidental. This is not just happenstance. But there is a purpose behind this world existing because God's hands molded it and fashioned it. There is purpose for this earth. It's not an accident, which means there is purpose for you as part of creation. You are not an accident. Whether or not your parents planned you, you are not an accident. You are here because of God's design. Because God has a reason for all that he does, and he is weaving a grand tale and a narrative and a story in all of creation, and you are a part of that. You do not have a purposeless existence. And I want to tell this especially to young people who are wondering, why am I here? And you may go through days where you think, I don't want to be here anymore. There, look back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and show there is a God in heaven who made you, who gave you purpose and reason, and you are not an accident. There is intent, design. There is a reason you're here. This whole thing didn't just happen to happen. A loving maker made you just as he formed the earth. And how will God carry out his purpose? Over the chaos of the unformed earth, there's a caretaking spirit. Verse 2, we see the caretaking spirit hovering over the waters. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. While the earth was a wasteland, deep covered in darkness, we see the beginning of God's purpose and his intent and his care with the Spirit of God who was hovering over the waters. You know that the word in both Hebrew and Greek for spirit is also the same word for wind. So you can think of like wind whipping over the water is like when a helicopter lands and wind is whipping everywhere. Or you might think of a bird fluttering, hovering over its nest. That's actually a biblical picture. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 32. Just a few books over in the Bible, Deuteronomy, towards the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 through 12. Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12, here Moses sings about God's care for Jacob, God's care for the nation of Israel, how he has preserved his people. Notice the language used specifically in verse 11. Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 12 says, In the desert land he found him. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. 
The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. You see the parallels there. The way God cared for Israel is like a bird hovering over its young, caring for them. And here we have, all the way at the beginning, the Spirit of God hovering over creation, caring for it, watching over it, preparing to do something wonderful with it. The ancient Babylonians had their own kind of creation story. Most religions and cultures have some type of creation account. The Babylonians had an account where the gods were at war with one another and fought with one another. And there was one creator god, so to speak, Marduk. And there was the ocean goddess, Tiamat. And creation came to be when these gods warred with each other and Marduk and some legions conquered Tiamat, the water goddess. And from her formed the waters and the earth and creation. And the earth came to be in conflict and war amongst warring gods, and that's how this all happened. There are some notable similarities there, but there's a big difference. In the Genesis account, God was in conflict with no one. There was no one warring with him. There was no one who could war with him. And creation was not formed out of conflict. Creation was formed out of love and care. God didn't conquer the uncontrollable waters. God created the waters. And his spirit cared and watched over. And out of everything, he formed this world. Creation began in beauty and peace and out of an expression of God's love and care, not as war or conquering. And God, having created, will care for his creation to the end. He doesn't start something he won't finish. He didn't begin with no purpose and no ending in mind. It's not like the recent Star Wars trilogy. He knew how it was going to end. From the, that was for the nerds. God knew how this was going to end from the beginning, and he wrote the story. He was going to do something with it through his spirit, and specifically by his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God. You say, well, what does Jesus have to do with this? I don't see him in the first two verses. We have God, we have the spirit. Where is the son in this? Well, we'll see that as we go through Genesis. But know now that God's story of creation and ultimate culmination and redemption, perfection of the world, all happens through Jesus Christ, the Son. Turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John. You're familiar with these verses, many of you. The Gospel of John in the New Testament. Do you remember how the Apostle John begins his gospel? Just like Genesis. John shows that Jesus, the Son, the Word, is the agent of creation and the one who redeems it. John 1.1 says, In the beginning, familiar phrase, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God created through the Son. Through the Son, through the Word, all things were made. But as we will see in Genesis, darkness will invade the earth. Darkness will come and corrupt God's creation. And it will seem as if maybe God's creation is under threat. Maybe this won't go well. Maybe this will all turn out poorly. It will all be doomed. There will be moments in the story of Genesis where it looks like all is lost, but we read the end of the story. We know through whom God is not only creating the world and has created the world, but the one who is sustaining the world and the one who will redeem the world. Through his Son, through the Word, God will maintain and upkeep creation. Hebrews 1.3 tells us, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful Word. So not only is the Son the one through whom all things were created, the Son, the Word, is the one who upholds and maintains all things that we still have life in this dark world because the Son is on the throne and He reigns and rules and He maintains all things by His power. And not only that, the Son will redeem all things and make light out of darkness. That He will reconcile all creation through His own death on the cross. So that's a big claim. That through a cross, through the one act, God would reconcile all things. And I'd say, I'm not making this up. I'm just reading Colossians. Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in him, the Son, Jesus Christ. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. There's that merism again. All things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, how? How would the Son make peace? Through his blood shed on the cross. This beautiful creation God made with purpose and intent would fall to corruption. Darkness, death, sin would plague it. How is God going to redeem, remake, reconcile his creation to, to himself and make all things good. He will do it through his son, Jesus Christ. Specifically, when he took sin and death on his own shoulders on the cross and buried them in his death. And when we celebrate Easter in just a few months, we celebrate not only the death of our sin, but the death of death, the death of the corruption of all creation, and when Christ rises from the grave, it is a sign that all creation will be reconciled and restored in him. And God will make peace out of this world through his Son. The God of Israel is the creator of the cosmos. And Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior of the world. God created this world by his power and brought life to it by his spirit and he has saved it and will save it and will bring it to perfection by his son, Jesus Christ. And he's the only one who has done this and can do it. So we praise him. Would you pray with me?
Father, today may we rejoice in your creation, not worshiping the creation itself, but worshiping the one who made it, the only one who is responsible for all the good we see. We know that every good gift comes from you, Lord. And this world is a good gift. As we look around, we see good things. We see people that we love. We see a, a sun that gives us warmth, homes that shield and protect us. And in all the good that we see, we know there's a God there who made that because he loves us and because it brings him praise and honor and glory. May you be praised by your creation, because of your creation, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.